You have joined us in the middle of a sermon series looking at 1 Peter, and the apostle has just finished a list of examples written for people to know how to live in a culture that doesn't really like believers, maybe thinks they're odd, possibly socially ostracizes them, and a lot of what he said had to do with submitting, living a life of service and willing to obey others that are put in charge of us. And after those easy commands, we come now to what scholars agree is the most difficult to interpret passage in the entire New Testament. Easy, no problems. In order to prepare us for that, though, I have to ask you a question that I would encourage you to answer to yourself. What is the dumbest thing that you've ever said? Think about it. And let's listen. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. So that, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me as I pray for us this morning. God, we thank you that we can come to this passage with confidence that this is your word. You have promised that it was you who spoke through the Apostle Peter, that it was written down, that your words were preserved for us. And as we approach it today, I ask that you would send your spirit into our hearts to help us hear the words of life. Whoever we are, whatever we've been through, wherever we've come from, help us to hear the words of life this morning. And to that end, I pray that my words fall to the floor and only your words remain. And we pray this in the mighty and powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen. None of us lives a perfectly righteous life. Let's just start there, right? In, everybody in here says and does dumb stuff bad stuff, things that the Bible calls sin. Everyone that you've seen on stage, all of our leaders, we are all full of failure and sin. And the question is not, why haven't I figured out how to be sinless yet? Why can't I get my life together? The question is not, what are the patterns and habits and pathways I can take in order to erase all sin from my life? That won't happen. The question is, What do you do when you fail? When you become aware of your sin, of your failure, of the dumb stuff that you've done, how do you respond? How do you handle it? 
When I first started working here at the church, I uh, encouraged the staff to get our own MailChimp email account so that we could email the entire list, uh, emails that have branding on it and pictures and links and videos, all that kind of stuff. And so I set it up and it was either the first or perhaps the second email that I sent to the entire congregation was a request for help for a family that at the time was coming to the church, no longer part of our church, had little kids and needed some help with just daycare, babysitting kind of thing while they dealt with health issues for another child. And so I typed up an email and I put in there, would you be willing to help with their children? In parentheses, I've forgotten their names and their ages. And I sent a draft email to Bob and a couple other leaders to make sure it was on the right page. The link was correct for the sign up. They sent some stuff back and said, hey, say this, put this here, here's the correct link. And then I hit send. So to the entire email list, I said, would you be willing to help out this family? I've forgotten the names of their children and their ages. I'm glad we can all laugh about it now. But I almost had a a nervous breakdown once I realized that I had sent that to everybody. I began to get sweaty. I'm starting to feel that a little bit now. Um, And I panicked. I can remember walking into our playroom uh, in our house, holding my phone with the email up, just waiting for the mom to call and just yell at me, or one of the leaders in the church to call and, and just get super angry with me. I even thought, you make a mistake on your first email in Silicon Valley? That's a fireable offense. Didn't happen. So I decided to call her to apologize. I, uh, again, pouring sweat. I'm so sorry. I know you've seen the email. Let me explain it to you how this happened, all this stuff. Uh, and she said, I, I didn't even notice that in the email. Now, that's one of, more, of my more innocuous failures. Didn't really have that big of far-reaching consequences. And yet, I still think about it almost every time I go to click send on MailChimp. My conscience brings it to mind every once in a while, along with the million other things that I've done wrong. And I know that's true of you too. David wrote Psalm 51, and in there he says, my sin is always before me. And I know each of us lives that way. Our consciences bring our failures to our minds. Well, how do you get a good conscience? Peter answers that very thing. And he's speaking to the extreme example of someone suffering because of doing good, following Jesus in the world. But the message he sends holds true for us when we think about our consciences. He says, you need to be rescued by Jesus. You need to believe that his death and resurrection provide confidence for the promises of God. And his death and resurrection give you strength to continue living in spite of all of your failures confidence and strength. We're going to look at those two things, but we're going to start by examining what's so problematic about our consciences. Did you know that you can see a conscience? You can see it at work. That's kind of what I mean, at least part of it. Have you ever been around someone who has broken something that doesn't belong to them? Maybe a child in a store, maybe you at work in someone else's office. You pick that up, it's broken. What's the first thing they do? You look around. You want to see if anybody's noticed. That's your conscience. It makes you very aware that you've done something wrong. Now, that's not the problematic part. That's actually the good part of your conscience. The problematic part shows up as it begins to tell you how you should respond. What should you do now that you're aware that you've messed up? Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this, the proper work of the conscience is to accuse or to excuse, 
to cause one to stand accused or absolved, terrified or secure. Its purpose is not to do, but to speak about what has been done and what should be done. And this judgment makes us stand accused or saved before God. I think we all agree. Most of us in here have one of two internal reactions when we become aware that we have made a mistake, that we've failed. Now, I'm going to say these with my own name in there, but feel free to insert your name because I am talking to all of us. You mess up, and the first thing you think is, you're such an idiot, Stephen. You've, you've done that again? Seriously? Some father you are, some pastor you are, some husband you are, Stephen. Or the other response you might have is this. Well, how are you supposed to respond when they say or do that thing? Cut yourself a little slack, Stephen. You can't be expected to do the right thing all the time, especially not in this environment. You are only reacting to what they said or what they did, accused or excused. That's the role of the conscience. That's how it works. My mom is visiting with us, and Margaret, our youngest daughter the other day, was starting to lose it. She was about to go crazy. She was very upset. And I just brought her over on the couch, sat her down, talked to her a little bit, kept myself emotionally uh, regulated, and said, here's how you should handle it, and here's what you should do. And my mom said, wow, I'm pretty impressed by how you did that. To which I kind of laughed and said, well, you caught me on a good day. And I said that partially because I don't know how to deal with uh, compliments, so I just deflect with humor. But also because I know the laundry list of times where I have not kept myself regulated, where I have gotten really upset. I have not been patient or peaceful with Margaret. And so that one instance feels like a drop in the ocean of my failure. Luther is right, accused or acquitted. That's it. And that is actually terrible. What a terror to be constantly held over the fire of judgment because of your failures. To have an inner monologue that just is filled with the ways that you've messed up, with the dumb stuff that you've said, the highlight reel of your own mistakes running through your head. But don't be fooled. It's equally terrible to be led to believe that your actions are nothing more than mere reactions that you've only messed up because of outside circumstances, right? That the narrative that we tell ourselves that we really aren't that bad, we compare away our failures, we blame shift, that narrative that tells us you're not as bad as them leads to the lie that we don't, what we do doesn't really matter, that it isn't worthy of any further thought or action. There is no change there. It is just being accused or being excused, right? No action. It's either melancholy or callousness. And whether you know it or not, we map that same narrative onto our relationship before God. Now, you might not think about it as your relationship to God. You might not go to the idea of God, but your conscience places you on a set of cosmic scales, balancing you out. And you think things like, well, I'm a pretty good person. I'm doing okay. I'm a good citizen compared to those people. Or I just am the worst. I can't do anything right. I am bad. Your conscience makes spiritual heart declarations, but it doesn't change you. It can't improve anything about you. And Peter says, we need change. 
More specifically, we need to be rescued. We need a Jesus rescue. This is the central thrust of Peter's point here and the foundation of the gospel message. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are God's rescue plan for you and your conscience. The Bible tells us that Jesus lived his entire life perfectly obeying God's law. He treated everyone perfectly, and because of that, he had a perfectly clean conscience. And when he goes to the cross, he extends that record of rightness, of obedience, and the glory and honor that he earned to you. And if you receive that, he takes from you the record of all the dumb stuff and the failure and the sin that you and I have made. And the cross becomes the punishment for all that sin. It's a great exchange. Sin is put to death. And then Jesus rises from the dead. If he just died and stayed dead, it would be an equal swap. You'd be morally neutral and things would be flat. But Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. And that new resurrection life that he rose with is yours. He will give it to you right? This is you being rescued. No more power of sin in your life. You have been rescued. This is what Peter is saying in this really strange passage about Jesus preaching to the spirits that are in prison. This is the part that scholars say, hardest part in the New Testament. And there are some really weird understandings and interpretations of this, but there are some who make that make sense. One is saying that Peter's telling the people, telling us, that when Noah was preaching to his neighbors, God is going to judge sin. Come, get in the ark, you will be saved. That that was actually the Spirit of Jesus speaking through him. That seems to make sense. I think we could get there. Another interpretation is that Peter is saying after Jesus lived, died, and rose from the dead, he went to the place that the fallen angels, authorities, and powers are being kept. Prison for the fallen angels who rebelled during Noah's time. And he is proclaiming to them the finality of his victory over sin and death, telling them it is finished. That seems to make the most sense with what Peter is saying here, but it's actually not important what it means. What is important, the point that Peter is trying to make, is just as those eight people on the ark, Noah and his wife, their three sons and their three wives, looked out across the water. As the rains came down and the floods came up, they knew God is the only reason we are safe. It is God who has saved us. And what Peter says is when you come to believe that Jesus lived, died, and rose again for you, when you make that great exchange, his righteousness for your sin, you should proclaim it publicly, profess your faith, and be baptized. That's what Jesus told us to do going forward. And as the water comes down over your head, the message is the same. I am safe because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, I am clean. I am in his family. And that's not just a a hopeful declaration. It's real change. From accused or excused to really and truly safe. Really and truly clean. Peter says Christ died for sin. Once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous 
to bring us to God. In Jesus, you have been rescued. I've been reading the biography of Reinhold Messner, who is a famous mountaineering legend, a polar explorer, and multiple times throughout this history of his life, he climbs these massive peaks in the Himalayas with a team of people, and they encounter time and time again terrible storms, absolutely unforeseen uh, conditions, and they all get stranded. He comes to this point each time he has, has suffered this experience where he realizes, if I don't do something, I'm dead. And so he figures out a way to rescue himself. Sometimes he wanders around aimlessly in a snowstorm until he can find the original trail. Sometimes he climbs up and around just trying to build a snow den for himself and his teammates in order to survive. One time he went back up and over the mountain the opposite direction into a completely different country until he found a valley, came across a a village of people who speak a completely different language than him and he could not communicate with. He was suffering dehydration and frostbite, and he stayed for three weeks in, in this hut, healing, recovering, while the rest of the world thought that he was dead. But he found a way out. He pushed on. He saved himself. And that's exactly what our consciences tell us to do. You are lost. You are going to die. You are all alone, and it's all your fault. Figure a way out. But life is not like mountaineering. There is no way out. There is nothing you can do to save yourself. But the gospel tells us Jesus comes to us. He rescues us. He gives to us new life. The rescue is complete and secure when you come to faith. But the new life is a change that takes your entire life to process. Right? We need a Jesus rescue, and we need a Jesus strength to continue to live through life as he changes us. Right? This is the kicker, is that in Jesus, your righteousness and your cleanness is true, and you will still fail. You will still fumble. You will still sin until you die. The Bible creates this tension between the identity as a saint and our actions as a sinner. So how does my conscience not continue to condemn me? How can I live in such a way that when people see my failure and my sin and they mock me for it or they point it out or they punish me for it, how do I not listen to those words and instead hold on to the true change of righteousness in my heart? We need Jesus to strengthen us. This is Peter's charge to the people to his writing. He says, first of all, be zealous for what is good. Be zealous for what is good. You want to have strong confidence that God has changed you? Do the good things you are called to. And this comes on the heel of this long string of examples, how to do good in the world, how to submit to the human institutions around us, to the government, servants to their masters, husbands and wives to each other. Peter says, be zealous for that for serving and loving and submitting to others. But the only way you can do that is if you realize that you have been set free, that you've been rescued, that your conscience has been cleaned by the blood of Jesus. The message is you have been changed, so you are able to go and live a changed life. And while you do that, the Holy Spirit 
continues to change you. It's a continual process. Maybe you're one of the people who moves to the Bay Area and adopts a new sports team, right? You move here and you think, I'm now a Warriors fan. So you buy the jersey, you buy the hat, you get some fake championship rings. You're now a Warriors fan. And then over the course of your first season here, as you watch the games, you start to become a real Warriors fan. You know all the bench players. You know all the stats. You remember all of the highlights that you've seen replayed over and over again. You are changed into a true Warriors fan. It's kind of like that, maybe. God tells you you are clean. I see you, and I see my son who lives perfectly. And then over the course of your life, he continues to clean you. Right? The truth of the rescue that Jesus has saved us with shapes the inner monologue of the gospel when the lies of our conscience creep in. Right? So it might sound a little something like this. You failed again. Ugh, you idiot, Stephen. Yes, I did fail again. But Jesus has washed me. He has rescued me. I'm God's son and I am forgiven. <sighs> a good husband a good worker, a good father would never do that. You're such a failure. You're right. The people who are in, next to me, interacting with me, my spouse, my coworkers, my kids, they are all suffering because of my sin. I too am suffering from the mistakes that I have made. But just like Jesus suffered and was resurrected to new life, God is raising me to new life too. He is bringing me home. And that's a destination that cannot be interrupted. God will bring me home. Nothing can keep me from being brought back to God. The gospel is good news to us. And it is news of God's good work in us. This past week, uh, in one of our Bible studies, we were talking about something similar, and a children's book came to mind, and I used it as a, you know, an illustration, and it actually fits perfectly here, so I'm going to use it again. Uh, the book is called You Are Special by Max Lucado. And just to tell you a little bit of the story, it's about a community of wooden puppets. They're called Wemmicks, and they all interact with each other by giving each other stickers, dots for dumb, stupid failings, stars for amazing good things that you do. Some of the Wemmicks have stars and dots. Some of them have all stars. One Wemmick in particular named Punchinello has lots of dots. He does everything wrong and everybody sees it. And he begins to believe, I am such a bad wooden person. I can't do anything right. And one day he meets a Wemmick that has no stars or dots. And she is happy. She is shiny. She is bright. And he says, what is your deal? And she says, well, people try to give me stars and dots, but nothing sticks to me. And he says, how? She says, go up the hill to see the woodcarver, Eli. And so Punchinello goes up the hill, and he begins to explain to Eli, the woodcarver, I'm so sorry. I have failed you. You made me, and I, I just keep doing all the bad stuff. I am a terrible wooden person. And he says, stars and dots, like, who cares? Who are the Wemmicks to give you stars and dots? They're just wooden people, too. What really matters is what I think of you. And then he tells Punchinello this, I made you, I love you, you are special to me. And every day as Punchinello goes back to see Eli, he says the same thing, I made you, I love you, you are special to me. And one day as he's walking down the hill back to his town, the dots begin to fall off of Punchinello. 
The reality of your conscience is that it is trying to give you dots and stars based on what you have done. The people around you are going to try and give you dots and stars based on what you have done. And you and I both know that if we're honest with ourselves, it's way more dots than it is stars. And the only hope that we have is if we go up the hill to the cross and we hear God tell us, I made you, I died for you, I love you, you are special to me. And it's that message of rescue that also strengthens us to see that we continue to live as rescued people who are being changed by our Heavenly Father gives us a good conscience. Let's pray. God, it is a hard message for us to hear that we who are sinners, we who continue to fail, who continue to find ways to walk away from you, are loved by you. It is hard for us to love people who do not like us. How, oh God, could you love us who often disrespect you and turn away from you? Which is why we thank you for the cross the most beautiful rescue mission, the most beautiful profession of love that we have ever seen. You come to us. You sent your son to live perfectly and die sacrificially and to rise victoriously. Would you help us to believe it? Proclaim to us your love. Show us, remind us, help us to live out of the truth that we are yours and you are making us into the image of your son. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.